Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs. By creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments, and more, you can keep your hard-earned money. Our Their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join guilt.com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really incredible founder. You know, we're going to be talking about becoming a founder without having the technical, you know, background, uh, really being adaptable, raising money, being relentless, you know, at it. Uh, and again, you know, the, all the good stuff that we like to hear on building, scaling, and financing. So without further ado, Let's welcome our guest today, Kevin Frechette. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Appreciate you having me on. So originally born in Massachusetts. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Uh, one of five kids, uh, middle of five kids. Uh, I'd say an absolute blast. I mean, summers were pretty much just running around, like sprinting around the woods, making forts. Uh, sports consume most of my time. Um, definitely like school, but I think I'm not like uh, some other maybe founders that you had in this call where I didn't like thrive at school. I think I was like an okay student. My passion was always for like going after challenges, just like typically around sports. That kind of led me to to UMass, the state school in Massachusetts. Uh, just seemed like a good fit across the board. So it's, I wouldn't say anything like out of the ordinary in my childhood, other than the fact that it was constant chaos and constant fighting across my, my, uh, my three brothers and sister. So then let's let's say let's let's talk a little bit about shifting gears here. You know, you graduate, you got your degree in finance, and uh, you did a, a few internships, you know, here and there with EMC and and so forth. And and one thing that you found along the way was your passion for sales. So how how did that come about? Definitely rooted in the fact that my dad's been in sales his whole career. And it's been more of the uh when I thought sales, I thought more transactional sales. I think what most people probably think when they think sales. Like you're going in, you're trying to do a hard close to get something done, which like I thought I loved that. And that's what I thought in like high school, even like college, like that's what I'm going to get into. Um, what really turned that was I started working at EMC right out of college as, as an intern. Uh, we had like a Gamble Lambda class, still friends with my like the, 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 the guys I started with and the woman I started with in that class. But it really kind of shifted my idea that sales was more about uncovering challenges, uncovering opportunities with, with the customer, with the organization understanding how they prioritize it, how to like quantify it, how to build the business pain, and then allowing a solution to potentially solve that to have a great outcome. Uh, so like that, that was really interesting because that was much more about being curious, asking questions and really just like asking, being okay, asking tough questions that people aren't used to get asked to get to the real answer 
or the root of, of like a problem or an opportunity. Um, also love the fact that in sales, like you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, I remember in my first job right at college, literally two weeks in, you had to get up in front of the entire company and or that was the whole sales organization and give a five minute pitch to everyone that knew exponentially more about the topic than you did. But the whole idea is that it just rooted out people that they just they didn't thrive in that type of situation. And if you messed up, that's perfectly fine. It's all how you bounce back from it. But like that whole aspect of it, I think it does translate to like being a founder to growing a company. But it's this idea that you kind of have to step out on the ledge a little more than you normally would. And you're going to get knocked down a ton, just like in sales, just like being a founder. There's a lot of no's. But when you do get to the yeses, it makes it that much more exciting. So how do you embrace the no's? Because, you know, as a founder too, you know, that's something that uh, yeah, I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening that are right now, like maybe like going at their first round of financing or pitching their first customers. So how do you go about not really taking that personal, the no's that come your way? Yeah, just, just step, taking a step back, knowing it's a journey, knowing that like it's hard. That's why people do it. That's why it's so valuable as well. Uh, and honestly, just having fun with it. Where every I mean, time they, you get a no, it's an opportunity to learn to get better. So if you get a no, whether it's a hard no or a soft no, and a lot of times growing a company, you get a ton of soft no's, uh, like across the board from customers, from uh, the venture world. And if you can learn something from that, and I, and I actually got some feedback, and we got feedback early on, that we'd get a no or a soft no, or we get a soft no, we, we just turn it to a no. And then if they fought back and turned to a yes, great. If not, then we try to understand more depth. Why was it a no? Not actually to turn them. Because if someone, say, from the venture community is not jacked up or fired up about what you're building your team, it's very difficult to go from like, they're not excited to they're ready to make an investment. But it is really cool to understand what do they, why, why is it a no? But like, what is, like what, what's their been in their impression? What are their thoughts? Because then you take that and you refine your message, you refine your deck, you refine your story. So you can keep getting a little bit better every time. If you keep getting 1% better and you get 50 no's, you, like, you made some serious progress. So then let's talk about shifting gears here into Turbonomic, you know, because uh, this company that you joined there, a VC-backed company, you know, gave you a lot. It gave you your mentor. It gave you your co-founder. So tell us about what you were doing there and how were you able to really, you know, me build those meaningful connections that would serve you well down the line? Yeah, I mean, it was, I wouldn't call it a startup at that point. It was like 200 people. So they, they had go-to-market fit, obviously well past product market fit. Um, that really was my first uh, introduction to uh, selling to an audience or an ICP that didn't actually always understand what the exact pain was or have urgency to address the pain. Whereas coming from a world that was very much this or this, uh, this solution or this solution, but it was much more of that like Sandler methodology or the challenger sale, where you really had to get people to uncover that they had the problem and then why they should solve the problem now, why they should prioritize it, which is something that is incredibly applicable to a startup. But yeah, I mean, at there, I was actually able to, to meet Tarek my co-founders, we were able to spend a ton of time together, like get a chance to know each other for about two years before we actually started the company, um, like massive turning point. And then also I got a chance to meet uh, Lou Shipley. So he's my mentor. He's our independent board member, just kind of that like level sounding board that I've had for the last six years that I can turn to. Um, so I mean, I think every different career step, it's a stepping stone. And it's trying to figure out what are you trying to build? Are we trying to take away from each one? So I did get the introduction more, more of a KPI-driven organization there. I got a different type of sale that was very interesting. And then I got to meet some awesome people. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a huge, like, pivotal step to, to us starting Fair Market. So then let's talk about starting Fair Market. You know, how does the uh, idea come about? And then how do you guys go about, hey, you know, I think this makes sense. Screw it. Let's do it. 
how it came about was just a blind leap of faith that let's try something new. Let, let's take a risk. It's kind of like that uncomfortable being comfortable mentality, comfortable being uncomfortable mentality. Um, honestly, we, we didn't come into it with here's a great product. Here, like here, here's a great idea. Let's go run at it and find, see if we can find customers for it. Like a lot of companies do. We were much more concerned about getting in front of as many executives as possible and just being curious and figure out what are the pains that they have? What are the areas of opportunity? And, and honestly, just asking questions. And that's probably the most fun part still uh, about fair market. It's like the discovery phase of just like asking questions and going through the process with them. We did bring in our CTO about a month in because we are two non-technical founders. We need to have someone that was technical. Um, and ultimately, what we found is that uh, a massive opportunity and challenge is that the enterprise procurement space was just wildly legacy and archaic. Uh, the processes were super manual, but companies spent over $8 trillion a year through these legacy processes that weren't beneficial for the buyers or the suppliers. So we, um, we, we, we jammed on the idea for a while. We created kind of the initial roadmap, and we ended up rolling out an autonomous sourcing solution that leverages AI to automate a lot of their procurement processes. Uh, and we've been really, really fortunate to do it with some of the biggest companies in the world, like Amazon, BT, ServiceNow, Capital One. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's, been, it's been a journey, um, and it, it still feels like we're just getting going. So in your case, I mean, I guess for the people that are listening to, to to get a better understanding, what ended up being the business model of fair market? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so we have a, a platform fee. Now, when a customer stands up with us, they get the core platform, the functionality, and then we do buckets of spend on top. So essentially, as they push more spend through our platform, uh, they get more savings, they get faster turnaround, they get a lot of KPIs that are strong business outputs, uh, and the contract increases as they push more spend through. So it's very much like value alignment. As you get more value with fair market, which our average ROI is 10x ROI, the contract size increases. So it's it's jointly beneficial. So you guys have also raised quite a little bit of money for this. So how much money have you guys raised today? Uh, 78 million. And why was the seat round so difficult? I mean, anyone right now that's raising a seat round that is a first time founder, uh, like I think you know the deal. Unless you guess you're generative AI right now, where that, that kind of like is a little bit of a different story. But for the most part, um, like there's, you haven't built any trust. You haven't built any credibility. Um, you, you don't know how to have the conversations. You don't even have the advisors to really turn to to understand how do you work through that process. Um, and and like it's, it is a lot of no's because it's a numbers game. So we, uh, we, we did everything from the angel groups. We did uh, like talk to every VC under the sun. We, I'd say the one like big piece of learning that I think is pretty cool that you don't hear talked about a lot is like now when we go do a fundraise, it's very much tops down. We talk to the main partner that we think is the best fit. We get an introduction to them. So it's very much like an enterprise sale. Uh, but I, I mean, and I, I still give people the advice, go tops down when you're like, find the right partner or find the right person and then work with them, then have to talk to the rest of the organization. But I will say like one of the best additions to fair market was inside partners that came in, not during the C, but the series A. And when we started to talk to Insight, uh, we got a, I got a cold email from an intern at Insight, Julian Marku, that he just said, hey, we'd love to chat. This is why he'd done all his homework, done all his research. I knew Insight obviously has a tier one. So I said, you know what, we'll jump on a call, even though it was an intern. And everyone said, don't do it. Don't waste your time. Protect your time. Uh, but I did it. And we hit it off. And then for the next year and a half, we started to meet more of the team. We started to get more comfortable with each other. We started to just like, we started to really understand our space. So we did the seed, which is a grind. We brought in, uh, ended up ultimately being successful after a long, long, long run. Uh, but we brought in some awesome investors. But then the Series A, we had a chance to work with like, like 10 or 12 different term sheets we had. But Insight had just been on that journey with us. 
and we had seen their excitement for the last year and a half. We built the relationship. So we ended up going with Insight for the A. They co-led the B with GGV, who had been tracking us for a long time at that point. And the C, we brought in Highland, Omers, and then ServiceNow as well. So I think like every step was a little different, but the beginning days were definitely the, the ground and pound, which, which looking back was a blast. And I guess uh, one of the areas that uh, those investors really look at is also the team and the uh, founders, and then also perhaps the technical capabilities of the founders, no? Because, I mean, to a certain degree, you guys are building something that has that uh, techiness, no? Uh, associated to it. So how do you guys balance, you know, for the lack of perhaps the technical skills on the backgrounds as founders? Yeah. Um, so I'd say that was more prevalent back in like year one or year two, where it was like, okay, is this team just selling over their skis? Um, are they just like over-promising, under-delivering? We got over that by having our customers talk about the value that's been driven, like doing case studies, talking to the venture community. So we got over that just with like customer references and people talking about us. So that was great. Um, in terms of about, about year three or four in, we did start to really double down from a hiring perspective on data science, on the engineering, the development side. Um, so that actually had turned, has turned to massive strength for us. I will say though, that... Um, Something that we fell into a little bit, I'm not sure if other companies do as well, is we, we had the roadmap division, which we do. We went for like two or three years hard at the core use case, and we were iterating, iterating, iterating. And then we had about a year and a half, two years when we were refining for our customers. We were kind of like really like zeroing in on our core use case, make sure people are getting the value. But we lost some of our agility and lost some of our speed in terms of what's next, what's next. So over the last two or three months, we've really shaken up the way we think about development and product like like, like advancements altogether, especially with generative AI. So we've moved to much more of an agile releases every week for some of our platform, like actually having design partners, not just as like, like a piece of paper that says you're a design partner, but working with five to 10 design partners every, like every week to figure out how are we all going on this journey together. So it's like different waves of development we've seen, um, which, which is a little scary, the fact that we did get into a little bit of that stale area, but I'm excited that we're, we're out of it. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So, I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. Uh, a good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety value and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And then double clicking on on the fundraising and, and also how to think about the fundraising process. You know, I uh, I believe that you also look at it, you know, from a sales you know point of view. That's saying ultimately your background too. So how do you how do you think about those fundraising process in an effective way so that you could streamline it and just as if it was, you know, also a sales prospect or or something like that. How how founders should look at it? Yeah. Um so it's two sides. So you have your team, which enterprise sales is very much a team sport. You never have like an enterprise sales team that's one person. It's you win together, you lose together. 
So it's making sure you have the right people on your side and they're playing the right roles. So that's a huge piece of it with like our CFO, with our two co-founders, uh, with our data science team, with our CS team, everyone across the board. And then on the, the venture side, it's A, for like any prospect, like you, you need to know your prospect super well. So really start to understand where the cohorts, where the ICP, who you're going for. And then um, like any like enterprise sale, it's not usually not an overnight thing. Like you build a relationship, you have what's called drip campaigns, where you kind of like take them on their journey, your journey with them, giving them the right amount of information, building the relationships. Uh, but then ultimately, like in, a, like in a sale, it's figure out when's the right time to create the sense of urgency to work towards the actual close. And make sure like the strategic part is making sure that the people that you potentially do want to work with, you get them to that point at the same time. And then you have your inflection point of, of why now? Uh, and then obviously a timeline, like reverse timeline, kind of all that aspect. Um, but ultimately, like th there's not many differences between a large complex enterprise sale and a fundraise process. I'd say a fundraise process is just slightly higher stakes. Um, but th that's, uh, that's just my take on it. And then I say you were talking here, you know, and thinking about because we're talking about people, right? Ultimately, investors are people. And um, in the end, you know, like I find that the people that you bring on to the company, you know, they're critical. Now, in a company like yours, the sales, you know, people that you bring on, you know, they're really important. You know, they can make it or break it. You know, and I've heard that, you know, on other, you know, folks that are also pushing enterprise sales. So how do you think about building, you know, a sales team, you know, of enterprise, you know, uh, individuals and uh, that have that skill set or that expertise and and how do you do it so that you're effective because those people not only they are hard to come by but they're also very expensive you know they, they cost a lot of of money on the payroll side it's double it's um quality over quantity is a big piece of it uh for us what we found even given the market the last like couple of years it's not about the amount of people you have or it's not about the quota the quota over a sign that you have it's about, do you have the right people in the seat that can actually quarterback uh, the rest of the organization to align them around these strategic initiatives that the companies have? Um, so for us, it, it is people like, A, people that fit our culture. Like that, not just sales, but like across the entire company. We have four core values. We stick to them incredibly strongly. Uh, we have zero tolerance when they're violated, but they're kind of like the foundation for how we're scaling fair market. Um, and then also like we've noticed that a company our stage, the... Um, the sales directors, they do need to be have, I won't call it an entrepreneurship mindset a little bit, but it does need to be a little bit creative in terms of how they're running the sale, how they're pulling in product, how they're pulling in CS, how they're working with finance to ultimately put the whole picture together. So by the time we get to the end of a process, like the company that we're, we're trying to work with has a complete understanding of who we are, where we're going, like what teams they're going to work with. Um, so it, it's not a, it, like there's, there's no silver bullet. And they're like some people that have experience for 20 or 30 years could be a great fit. Some people that have experience for three or four years could be a great fit. So it's not about the amount of time. I think it's more about the mindset uh, in terms of how they approach a, like an overall like initiative, we'll call it with a customer. Um, and being at a company our stage still, like you do have to, once again, get creative to make sure that like you're solutioning with the customer and you're not just saying, here's what we have and we're giving them a pitch. And what do you look for typically in, in those salespeople? I mean, is there like a, a specific thing that you're looking for? Maybe like a question that you pay more attention, you know, when they answer, when they're like in that interview, you know, uh, process. I mean, what do you really look for? Curiosity. It's people that are actually asking a bunch of questions, the thoughtful questions. And then when you answer the question, they ask another question about the question, referencing what you said and pulling that in. Uh, it's one thing to have a set list of questions that you're going to ask someone in an interview. 
uh, it's another thing just to like not ask questions, just to talk and not have any social awareness that you're talking too much. Uh, I sometimes do it too. So I need to get better at it. So always, but essentially um, it's people that really are trying to ask questions so they can understand, not ask a question so they can ask a question and then they can wait to reply with something else so that it's, it's, it's tough to teach. Um, and one way to do it is, um, is to actually have like use gong, gong recordings, have playback sessions like game film. And you call out what good looks like when reps are doing a great job of it, championing it. When they're not, it's not, not coming down the street, but like call it out. Uh, so like that, it's that repetition and almost like the gamification of being curious and continuing to like peel back the onion. That's something that um, I feel like is just absolutely essential if you're in any bit of like an enterprise strategic sale. And talk to us about the, I mean, the market that you guys are in, I mean, is uh, anything that is AI automation. I mean, I think I read the other day that the compounding annual growth rate, you know, the, the growth of, of, of this market, of this segment of AI and automation, I mean, I think it's some, something crazy, like 40 plus percent, you know, uh, year over year, which is like insane. So what, what kind of trends are you seeing? I guess, you know, being at the right time in history is everything when you're building a company, but it sounds like from a timing perspective, you guys are right on. Yeah, I mean, we, we kind of see two different macro trends right now. Um, one is the macro trend of like the financial uh, state and supply chains. So like one of the areas is that people are actually starting to look to save money, like people that previously weren't uh, from like a large company perspective. So like that's a very interesting value prop for us because we help save about 11% on average of everything that goes through us. The other big one is people are looking to work with more diverse and sustainable suppliers. So ESG is becoming much bigger. We use our algorithms to help the throttle that. Um, on top of it, like supply chain issues, everyone's seen them in the news. That's real for big companies. So that's one of our value props. So like that's hit very well. So it's not that like it's been this massive tailwind that's been like exponential, but it's been a pretty good tailwind where it's helped us to kind of get through these these years and like perform very well through them. Now, uh, the AI and the generative AI one's super interesting because we've had AI in the, pl AI in the platform for the last four years. Um, but now with generative AI, it's almost like... Uh, in a good way, I guess, from one side, where like every CFO and CEO are saying, like, do we have an AI initiative? Do we have an AI project, generative AI? And the downside is it's kind of a checkbox now for, uh, for in our world, for like procurement teams or digital teams and saying like, oh, do you have AI? But in reality, like AI is very different. Like generative AI is very different depending on the use case, how it's set up, like how strong the models are. Um, so we're kind of viewing it as like, everyone can have a cell phone, but if it's a flip phone from 2005 versus an iPhone, it's like, it's, it's so different. So that's one of like, it's a pro because now we're getting asked about it. We've adopted generative AI in different parts of our platform. It's like bringing it to the forefront. So before maybe we couldn't get to the CFO of a Fortune 500 company. Now, now we can. Uh, the challenge is there's a lot more noise in the market. So it's how do you stay true to explaining and showing with business value what your use cases are, how it provides value to them and where it could go in the future. That's, that's why we're rolling out a bunch of betas right now to complement our core platform. It's because we want to figure out like, what customers want to go on the journey? And then also, what are the barriers? Like, that, like obviously, data privacy is a massive one right now. Like, every single person that's looking at generative AI is going to bring up data privacy in the enterprise space, like full stop. So it's making sure that the way you build from the ground up takes that into consideration and make sure that that's not going to be a limiting factor in the next three to six months as it starts to get deployed widespread. Now, as we're talking about here, trends, I want to keep talking here in, you know, towards the future. So let's say... You were to go to sleep tonight, Kevin, and you wake up in a world where the vision of fair market is fully realized. What does that world look like? 
if, I think it's a, the situation in the future. There'll never be that future state where it's done because we always kind of take it next. But if it was today, and I was going to fast forward and wake up, um, it would be zero friction in the buying and selling process uh, in both sides are optimized with AI. So AI is set up to help companies optimize how they buy and AI is set up to optimize how companies sell. Today, we're not even near that. Today, right now, it's people literally still dropping off pamphlets onto enterprises to sell to them. It's still people making phone calls, sending emails to get bids to actually buy something. So it, it is very much a future, future state, but it's one that we're tripling down on with this autonomous sourcing, autonomous selling that, uh, that we're fired up about. So then, so then here we're talking about the future, no? And um, I want to also have the opportunity of talking about the past, but doing that uh, with a lens of reflection. So let's say I put you into a time machine and I bring you back to that moment, you know, that moment where you were still, you know, you're working for, for this other company, for Turbonomic, and uh, you're able to give yourself a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Never expect it to feel like it's all figured out, like it's perfectly well-oiled. Um, there's always, you need to have a vision. Like you should have a plan for the next 12, 18, 24 months. But um, even when I was, I was at a dinner with one of our venture teams, like two months ago, and a new founder asked me like, okay, like, what do you, what do you not have figured out that you thought you would by now? And I, I kind of referenced a couple of things about like, oh, like, more predictability, well-oiled machine, like all these different areas that I would have thought uh, at this point in the company, we would have down pat and be like, not cruise control, it's the wrong word, but a little more in cruise control. Uh, and one of the, the partners there uh, was like, that, that'll never be the case. Like it'll never feel just comfortable and just like steady state running where their best public company, like the CEO doesn't feel like that at all. Uh, so that's one of those things where um, like the, the, the driver shouldn't be to get to that state. Or it's, oh, can I get all the perfect people in place? And can we be working with this team where it's like, it's almost on auto, like autopilot. It's like, if that's happening, first of all, it's unrealistic. And if it is, you're probably not pushing the barriers as much as you should be and disrupting as much as you should be. So just like expect it always to feel like, like you're charging, running full speed, breaking down doors and that grit, like it's real. Like always feeling like you need grit to take that next step. Um, so that's just one thing that, I thought at this point wouldn't have been the case, and I love it. But that's the journey. Everyone should always be on a journey. Uh, but it, it, it's been it's been a surprise to me. I love it. Well, Kevin, for the people that are listening, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Uh, just LinkedIn. That's the best way to do it. Or Kevin at FairMarket.com. Uh, absolutely love helping, giving advice, like talking to new founders. More so just to to hear the story. I love the passion that they bring into every conversation, the excitement. So um, always happy to help. Hey, easy enough, Kevin. Thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Awesome time chatting with you. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.